everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with uh, Chris Nicholson. Um, Chris, uh, as you know, loves all things war and all things military. Um, and we're here to talk about uh, not Russia and Ukraine today, although that's a lot going on there, um, but the uh, Ukraine and China situation. Um, so, Chris, uh, we want to talk about some of the sort of military specifics of um, what a conflict here would potentially look like. Uh, and we're recording this, you know, just days after um, we're on October 17th, 2022, the U.S. Uh, imposed some restrictions to try to uh, stop the development of uh, China's uh, uh, chip industry. Uh, maybe we'll get to that, too. But for for now, can you just pull up the uh, and this is going to be for people who are watching this on, uh, on uh, watching the video of this. And so people uh, can follow along. Um, but, you know. For the people listening on just the audio, they're not going to be able to see what we're talking about. But just can you pull up the map of the map of uh, what you're looking at? Yeah, sure. Okay, so that's Taiwan. Uh, it's right there in the southeast corner of the world. Uh, okay, if you're China, uh, what do you what do you do? How do you take this island? Okay. So there are a lot of factors to consider, and we, we definitely should talk about the uh, semiconductor war that we've decided to start waging against them, because that's central to the military equation here. But that'll come up a bit later. So Taiwan, right over here, a little over 100 miles away from mainland China. The basic two categories of military moves that we have to consider are an invasion versus a blockade. And most people have spent most of the time over the last few years talking about China invading Taiwan. Uh, and that is certainly an option. There are many considerations uh, that arise. But a blockade is kind of the easier, slower military maneuver that they could employ against Taiwan. And it's looking like a blockade is probably more likely. There's been more discussion lately about the U.S. talking about whether it could break a Chinese blockade of Taiwan or not. So those are the two categories that we we need to analyze. And then you you uh, you do the blockade and what they they surrender is that the point? Yeah. So you do the blockade, uh, and the, the way you ex execute the blockade is basically you would surround Taiwan, uh, especially its ports. Uh, you would use small, faster ships. You you'd use a lot of submarines, and you would basically control the imports and exports from Taiwan. So uh, you, you would prevent semiconductors from leaving Taiwan. Uh, you'd interdict them and maybe allow some of them through, maybe not. And China would potentially stop Taiwan from importing the oil that it needs uh, or the food that it needs. Taiwan needs a lot of each. And so it, it would just apply the pressure and kind of strangle Taiwan until it gave in. Mm hmm. Uh, and then the other thing is an invasion. And how would you invade Taiwan? The invasion would be much more difficult. Uh, this would be the largest amphibious assault that we've seen in, in history. It would dwarf D-Day. And these are some of the most complex combined arms military operations that you can execute. Why would it dwarf, dwarf D-Day? What's so hard about this? Well, it would just take a lot more men. Uh, to, to take Taiwan through an invasion, uh, it's hard to say exactly how many it would take, but but it, but it would take many trips back and forth. And China kind of has a limited amphibious assault capacity. 
th this is related to one of the links that I pulled up. Uh, so let, let me just boil it down to the simplest parts. Okay. So you need boots on the ground in an mm -hmm. invasion. And the way that China would have to get that is primarily, well, not primarily, but Ch China would rely on its amphibious assault ships. China has been building a lot of those lately. So these are military ships that carry troops and equipment like tanks. And China has built a limited number of these things, which is kind of interesting. Uh, it's military transports right now. It doesn't actually have that many. And their capacity is to land maybe 10,000 troops at a time on Taiwanese shores, 10,000 troops and, and equipment. Uh, that's a number that we might call a division, roughly. Uh, and 10,000 isn't that many, and, and they'd be under fire, under heavy fire from anti-ship missiles from Taiwan the entire time. It, it would be hell trying to make it across mm. the strait. And, are, and then they'd have to claim the beaches. Where can you, where can you actually land? I, I've heard that it's hard to, there's actually uh, not that many places where you can actually can land. It, it, is, is this a major consideration here? It is a major consideration. Uh, there, there are well-known, a certain number of limited, well-known landing sites that are, that are prime opportunities for beachheads. And mm -hmm. Taiwan is well aware of that. And th they all tend to be mostly on the, the west coast of Taiwan. Uh, and, and that's really where it's most heavily populated, too. That's where all the ports tend to be. As you can see from the map right here, you know, there's not that much uh, on the east. It's mm -hmm. mountainous and forested. Uh, so it, it's well known, and those areas are very well defended. So this would really be hell to try to accomplish. Mm. Now, yeah, it could how, be done, potentially. How, but how open? That West Coast, is that whole West Coast? Uh, uh, not even the whole West Coast is open, right? Uh, is each one of these ports like just uh, uh, like a little opening and the rest is mountains? Or what's the geography? Yeah, I'm not completely sure about that. And I, I forget the exact number of sites, but uh, but I... Off the top of my head, the number of potential landing sites here are on the west west coast and, and the southwest region. Uh, it's somewhere around a dozen, maybe maybe a bit more than a dozen. Mm -hmm. So these are these are well known and heavily defended. Uh -huh. And you know, uh, th there's a lot of discussion over whether China is capable of pulling off an invasion right now or anytime soon. I will say that. One major factor that most analysts don't consider is that they don't think about the possibility that China could employ its civilian transports to carry troops and equipment. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very important factor that really escapes a lot of U.S. analysts. China's military civil structure is much more integrated than uh, the United States's. For us, there's a very sharp division between what's military and what's civilian. For China, uh, as part of their system of government, there's a much stronger integration. And so China has all these separate fleets that are semi-military that we tend to ignore in our analysis because they're just not under the label Navy. They're not under the label PLAN, uh, People's Liberation Army Navy. Uh, one, one fleet we have to consider is its Coast Guard. It's got the world's largest Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing China does is it takes military ships, uh, capital ships, corvettes, small, fast warships, and and it it just strips the missile tubes out and it sends them over its, 
to its Coast Guard and says, okay, you're no longer a naval ship. You're in the Coast Guard now. Mm-hmm. And it's got 20 or 30 of those. Uh, if, if a war came, it could just strap missiles back onto those. Suddenly, boom, more warships. We tend to ignore that. The other really important fleet toward an invasion that we tend to ignore is what's called China's maritime militia. Uh, and these are civilian ships, uh, often fishing ships, and they are constructed according to military specifications. Mm-hmm. It's been this way at least for the last decade, I think. Uh, and so, so they, they've really been heavily involved in military exercises recently. China's not being particularly secretive about this. It has its civilian transports uh, do naval exercises with all the warships, and it loads them up with soldiers and tanks. So this is actually where the bulk of China's invasion capacity would come from. And so, so are these are these ships? They're uh, they're are they state are they they're for state-owned enterprises? What are they used for usually? Um, some of them are used uh, in the maritime militia. Some of them are used officially for fishing exercises. It's not clear how much fishing these fishing ships. What is, a, what is a fishing exercise? What's a fishing exercise? There's okay, fishermen. I mean just fishing. They're officially they're just used for fishing. Unofficially, uh-huh. uh, the maritime militia it, it's employed in the South China Sea a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, when you read in the news about China bullying the Philippines, for for instance, or or mm-hmm. Vietnam, yeah, really what that typically amounts to is it sent its maritime militia fishing ships to just anchor down in a certain spot, a certain reef or something, and, and kind of crowd out the other countries that are around the South China Sea. It's called a, a form of gray zone warfare. Uh-huh. China is really mastering that and, and using its semi-civilian fleets to accomplish that. Now, the ships that I was just talking about, the ones that we would use to transport troops and equipment, uh, those are often called ferries, especially what's called roll-on, roll-off ferries. Sometimes mm. people abbreviate that as ro-ros, mm. R-O-R-O. Uh, and so those, as, as the name says, officially they're used to just ferry people and, and cars around. That, that's what they're the same. That's what they're supposedly intended for, to, to move lots of cars. But as a matter of fact, this would form the bulk of China's amphibious assault capacity. And, yeah. and and they have a they have a quite large capacity here. I was just reading an article about it, good article uh, from War on the Rocks. Uh, the cross strait potential of China's civilian shipping has grown. So to give you the bottom line here, and, and here here you see one of these uh, these ferries that it that it could use. Mm, yeah, ferry. I, when I think of ferry, I think of a little you know, those little things that you sort of uh, you bicycle across the across the sea. But that's that's not what that's not what that is. Yeah. And these things are actually in some ways better for this purpose than dedicated uh, military amphibious assault ships. Although China has a few of those now, uh, because the military versions they're kind of optimized to to extend further out. Uh, to to be able to sustain a, a, a few hundred Marines uh, at sea for weeks or even months. Mm. But here, you know, when it comes to invading Ch- Taiwan, China just needs to take as many soldiers and their, their equipment across the hundred miles straight. Mm. And so there's no frills. There's, there's no, uh, they're just optimized to carry as much as possible. And in reading this, the bottom line to it was something like this. 
if you just look at the dedicated military amphibious assault ships, China can carry maybe 10,000 soldiers at a time. Mm. If you include all of their civilian transports, that number rockets up to somewhere around 300,000. And so this is a major factor in China's invasion capacity that American analysts often ignore. And it's really dumb how how they ignore it. Uh, You read some articles from American analysts saying, oh, we don't need to worry about a Chinese invasion of Taiwan because they would need a lot of transport capacity. We add up their military transports and we say, oh, they can only transport 10,000. They're nowhere close to the capability they need. And then, you know, as an observer, you have to sit back and think like, wow, that's really dumb of China to, mm-hmm. to, to not build transports when it wants to invade Taiwan. But the answer yeah. is it has. It just labels <laughs> them civilian. Uh, so so the, these are I mean, how many are in the like the Coast Guard and how many are just like uh, I mean, are they're, you know, there's I assume there's there's state owned enterprises there. There's something the government can call on basically anytime they want. I mean, uh, they mother are they around the world fishing and like they'd have to be called back and, you know, re- repurposed. And I mean, how how available is this? That's, stuff? A, that's a good question. Uh, so China's maritime militia, it, it does kind of roam. Now these particular ones, the transports, the ferries. No, the maritime militia. What? What? Like, what is it? Is it a p- branch of the mili- the military? What is it? It's it... officially yes. Uh, I think its its status is a bit of a legal gray area, uh, and and this is constantly in flux. Okay, uh, just a year or two ago, China passed a law that more closely integrated its coast guard and its military, uh, and and. I think around the same time, China passed a law authorizing its Coast Guard to to fire upon enemy ships when, when they intruded in, into it. So this area. is the co- this is the Coast Guard. That's the Coast Guard. Now the maritime militia. Mm. In the maritime militia, militia, we ought to separate the fishing ships from the ferries. Uh, the ferries, I think, those tend to be close close to Chinese shores. Uh, and there are some Hong Kong ferries too. They're, they're, that's an important branch. Uh, they tend to. Wait, but why is there? Why is there? Kong. Why is? Why do they have fishing boats like uh, ostensibly for within uh, like this branch of the military? Like, well, why? Why does the military just catch this fish for? Well, it's a what? gray zone strategy. Remember, uh, th- this is a kind of hybrid warfare that Russia really started to pioneer back in 2014 uh, when it used these gray zone tactics. People called them little green men. Uh, Wait, so, so they built the fishing boats. They're not actually, I mean, are they fishing? Do they sell Officially, fish? they are d- intended and designed to fish. But why it's would just, you do that? Why would your military have fishing? But like, does, does the military do that? Like militaries don't do that, right? Well, China does. It's kind of pioneering this. And okay. it's because this is, this is the idea of gray zone warfare. You want to use a level of force that's semi-military, that's enough to bully around Filipino fishermen but that is not a high enough level of military force to invite a naval response mm. from the United States, especially. So, so you know, that's, that's where the Coast Guard comes in. It's, it's a level of military force that they ha- the Coast Guard ships have big guns, they've got helicopters, they have machine guns, but they don't have missile tubes. So mm. the Coast Guard is the level of force just below a Navy. And the maritime militia mm. is a level of force just below the Coast Guard, uh-huh. where you know the, these these uh, fishing ships, they might have some guns. Uh, they they are built to be able to ram other ships, for instance. They're designed to be able to ram effectively, and they have water guns. 
sometimes. Mm. Water uh, guns yeah. and they squirt water. Yeah, they they shoot water with great force, and, and so they they go up to the you know the Filipino fishermen and they they, they don't fill them full with they don't pump them full with lead. They uh-huh. just shoot these these forceful water guns at them, and that's enough to drive them off. Uh-huh. And and so, so that, that's and- that's critical to gray zone uh, military <clears throat> tactics. Uh, to employ a level of force just above the opposing fishermen, enough to bully them, but not enough to invite a U.S. naval response. So, is I mean, is, does the U.S. have? I mean, is this like something the U.S. or the Western countries do equivalent to this this so-called gray zone uh, tactic? So, when like the U.S. Ar- arrested uh, the lady from uh, the high-ranking official from Huawei. Um, they had her. Uh, they had a. Uh, they had the Canadians arrest her, and then she was. Uh, uh, I think she she just stayed under house arrest in Canada, and then went home. Um, I guess this is this is maybe maybe something else. The, what is what is the gray is the gray zone is the gray zone defined as something that's like military, but not quite military, but it's connected to the government. Is is that sort of a definition? Basically, uh, and, and it's called gray zone because it occupies a legal gray area. So what about like, uh, you know, like Blackwater, like, would that, would that be something like the U S if they were maybe, if they would have to be used strategically, if they're just used in like sort of everything's out in the open, then it's not. But if they were like, I don't know, out overthrowing other countries, that would be sort of a, a kind of gray zone. You know, we don't really talk about gray zone tactics much when it comes to the United States. Uh, and in part it's because we don't really do that much of that. China is the one really pioneering this area. We mm-hmm. kind of, have to think about trying to catch up to them. Uh, you know, there's some talk of sending some U.S. Coast Guard ships over to the area to respond to China's own Coast Guard. You know, it's we we don't want to escalate by responding to their Coast Guard or militia with with destroyers with warships. So we kind of are catching up to these tactics. Still, we we don't employ many gray zone tactics ourselves, uh, especially navally. Now mm. you could you could try to call something like Blackwater. I think it's been renamed, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I forget what its new name is, but the, the, they don't want the Blackwater brand anymore. You can mm-hmm. try to call that a version of Gray's own tactics. It normally isn't, but but yeah, it, it's, it's in the same spirit. If we tried to hire Blackwater, uh, whatever it's named right. now, to, so to do something so instead of our own military. Wagner in Russia uh, would be sort of uh, something like this, right? Even though they're more integrated into the Ukraine war. Like when they go out and they just do stuff sort of in other areas that that that's like gray zone. Yeah, kind of. Okay, so okay, so so China has potentially the uh, you know the equipment to transfer a lot of these. Yes, okay, so this this makes sense because what I would read these like you know fishing vessels, Chinese fishing vessels are like you know pushing around you know Philippines or Vietnamese and like you know fishing vessel. Like what's 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 that? Okay, so yeah, they're 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 military fishing vessels that supposedly are supposed to just catch fish, but are actually just used to bully. How, how old are these um, fishing vessels? How long have they been doing this? Um, you know, oh. not, not that old. Uh, some of them are probably older, but I, I think a lot of them have been built and employed within the last decade or so. Okay. I mean, is there like an ancient Chinese tradition of having like uh, fishing boats as part of your military or something? Because that would, uh, or was it like this, like, does it seem like a more conscious strategy to just invent something new? I don't know if there's an ancient Chinese tradition of it, uh, but this particular these particular gray zone tactics, these are something that we've really seen China use a lot of within the last decade. I would say. Okay, so what about okay? So you you would you would invent okay? So you you have the capabilities to 
invade. It's tough because you know they they know where the Taiwanese know where the sites are. Uh, what about what about air power? What what is what what can uh, what can China do? We've been watching this in the Russia war. I mean, I was I, I you know I'm surprised how little Russia could do in the infrastructure. I thought having missiles and stuff, you could knock out a, you know, a country's power, but apparently that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, you know, what can China do sort of from the air uh, to Taiwan? Well, they can do a lot. Uh, China has been developing its air force, uh, you know, its, its bombers, its, its fighters, uh, its aircraft carriers. And, and so certainly it could contribute a lot of firepower from the air. Now, I want to be careful I don't want to say that China could invade Taiwan tomorrow, say. Mm. I, I do want to say that in any consideration of its capacity, you, it's a central consideration that you consider uh, its civilian transports from its maritime militia, especially mm. the roll-on, roll-off ferries. That, that is the central capacity it would use to carry troops. At the same time, the fact remains that it is very difficult to conduct an invasion, an amphibious assault on that scale. Uh, and a lot of these would be sunk, you know, and mm. they're juicy targets, uh, these civilian ferries. There are various things that China would do to try and protect them. You know, it's got all, all its ships, its, its destroyers, its frigates. We'll probably talk about a bit more as this goes on about different classifications of ships and their role. And those, those are outfitted with... Uh, with missiles that it would use to try to shoot down the Taiwanese missiles to protect the ferries, to protect the transports. Uh, another, another thing it would, would do, I read a, an interesting think tank analysis that was specifically on the subject of all the different ways that China could use its maritime militia to supplement an invasion. And the, they can make contributions beyond just the transport capacity itself. Uh, I was reading in this analysis, it was saying that it could basically use some of its civilian ships as decoys, outfit them with with radars uh, mm. and mirrors and other measures to kind of kind of blind the Taiwanese sensors to try to disguise the ferries. So there are many considerations on both sides here. At the end of the day, I'm left thinking that China is not quite ready to pull off an invasion of Taiwan. Uh, it would be pretty bloody, and it, it's far from a sure thing. And so I think that when it comes to invasion, China probably wants to build up its capacity for at least a few more years. Yeah. I mean, there's, that, you that's know, why there's... a blockade is a much easier affair. Yeah. The, you know, it's interesting because there's, you know, the China has one real foreign policy goal, right? Which is to, uh, reunite with Taiwan and everything else seems secondary as far as what it could do with its military. And Taiwan has one military goal, which is to defend itself against uh, a Chinese invasion. Um, and, you know, it's, I mean, it's interesting. It's just the sort of the, the uh, specifics of, you know, whether the offense or defense is favored here. And this is, and I, I, this looks like a situation where it's clearly the defense that's favored. Um, but, you know, China is a much bigger um, country has a lot more resources to to throw at this things, but yeah, I mean, we saw in Russia, Ukraine that that's not you know, and and the US, various U.S. wars where it lost against weaker opponents. So that's not sort of you know, that's not the end all be all. So it's it's very hard, right? Yeah. So I'll tell you, when it comes down to an invasion scenario, basically the key element is how quickly 
could Taiwan and, say, the United States shoot down all the Chinese transports, both military and civilian? Uh, because if, if and this, this is something that came up in some prominent recent war games that were publicized, uh, there, there, was, there were a bunch of articles about the results of these war games, uh, and the war games, they were kind of phrased as if the United States and Taiwan fended off the Chinese after three weeks or so, because what they said was, after three weeks, we shot down all of the Chinese military transports, and mm -hmm. so then what they were left with were 10 or 20,000 soldiers stranded on the west coast of Taiwan without the possibility of reinforcement. Now. Uh, these war games, I don't think they fully considered all of the civilian transport that China could use. At the same time, that is the consideration that it would come down to. Our, our, our submarines, especially, would also be having a field day trying to sink China's transports in the in the street. Yeah, but I mean, China, but China is right there off its own coast, right? So Taiwan and the U.S. would have, but the China would also have these air bases. Uh, Right on the coast, and I guess so. So would Taiwan, but I mean, presumably China would have a lot more, right? So that would factor into the battle. It would, but we, we have certain advantages, and one of our biggest military advantages against China, both in an invasion and blockade scenario, is our submarine fleet. Mm. Our, our submarine fleet is pretty unmatched, and, mm. and we, all of our subs are nuclear. Uh, they're very stealthy, very quiet, and very modern. And, and so a lot of this comes down to how good China could become at anti-submarine warfare. Yeah. Well, I mean, this and is assuming, assuming a big assumption. The U.S. goes directly and starts shooting at Chinese uh, uh, ships. I, I don't think that that's, I don't think that's anywhere close to guaranteed, right? Well, that's kind of the big question. And what we have to do to figure that out is consider how it would go. We, we, I'm not really making the assumption is mm -hmm. that both sides are are kind of both sides are making the assumption and that the U.S. would intervene in order to figure out whether the U.S. could or should intervene? Yeah, and even if it go, I mean, if it goes well, I mean, you also have you know you also you have a whole set of new problems uh, too. So yeah, it doesn't answer the question, you know, uh, you know that obviously. But okay, um, okay, so that's that's the that's the invasion uh scenario now what's what's the how does the blockade look like so you just have this west coast this west coast is uh of where the ports are um and that seems like yeah that seems manageable just looking at the map yeah uh this is actually what we saw china practice a version of in its extensive naval exercises right after pelosi's visit well during pelosi's visit too i think uh, mm. china really did a bunch of war games where it didn't it didn't game out a complete blockade of Taiwan, but it, it chose many zones of Taiwan. I think there were six zones or so that it exercised in. What was kind of interesting about those exercises is that although they were officially kind of simulating a partial blockade, they weren't actually using the same ships that they would use in a real blockade. Mm. So you have to separate capital ships, uh, warships. The big warships are called capital ships, and those can be divided into the bigger ones and the smaller ones. Uh, so the bigger ones are cruisers and destroyers. Mm. What's interesting is that in those exercises around the time of Pelosi's visit, China simulated a partial blockade using its big capital ships, its cruisers and destroyers, 
Mm. And those are not, in fact, the main capital ships that it would employ in an actual blockade. For those, it would use the smaller ones, the mm. frigates and the corvettes, because those are smaller and faster. And so there's, those are better at intercepting uh, ships. Yeah. So to, to stop you know, merchant vessels from getting in, you don't need you know, the, the big destroyers, right? You exactly. just need something. You need the, exactly. You, need, you, you don't need, you know, you don't need a, a hammer to swat a nail. You need into the smaller, faster ships. And not only that, there's the consideration about what you want to expose to Taiwanese firepower, what you want to risk losing to Taiwanese anti-ship missiles. Uh, there's no reason to send your biggest, most expensive ships to, for the, the purpose of a simple blockade. Those ships are intent are intended to fight other big ships. For this purpose, you want to use the small, cheap ships that you wouldn't mind losing that are fast enough to intercept uh, merchant ships. Yeah. And so even if, I mean, even if you use submarines, yeah, and, and even if Coast China, Guard too, uh, yeah, the Coast Guard is, is relevant, I think, in the blockade scenario. Uh, the co- China's Coast Guard is massive, it's got at least a couple hundred ships, many of those are former naval ships, and so its Coast Guard would be especially relevant to enforcing a blockade of Taiwan. And, and that's a large capability that the United States often doesn't consider for whatever reason. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, even just, um, even, f- so how easy is it to, you know, make sure nothing, nothing gets, gets through? It must be very, I'm thinking it's very easy because merchants are not, you know, they're going to be risk averse. They're not military. So if exactly. you, if, you know, if they have, there's a chance they might get shot, they're going to, or captured, they're not going to go, they're not going to go there. It's not going to be worth it. Right. Exactly. I, I think that's the main consideration. You know, it, it's not really so much about whether they could make a, a an impenetrable net around Taiwan, yeah. even if it's, you know, semi-permeable, but there's great risk to a ship, it no longer makes business sense to, to, to try. And even if Taiwan, and even if Taiwan fights, I mean, it's a war zone, right? It's still a big risk. You're, I mean, you have to, you have to get rid of the, them on the coast completely for this stuff to, to stop this, right? Sorry, what are you getting at there? So if so, even if Taiwan, you know, it's like the Taiwan has this battle, these battles at sea where it goes out and it tries to fight the Chinese ships. Um, you know, th- that's still the blockade. As long as the battle is going on, there's going to be a blockade because merchants aren't going to merchants aren't going to go through that, right? Yeah. Now, and, the, the, there's a lot of discussion about how effectively the United States could puncture a Chinese blockade. Uh, th- there were some articles that came out a week or two ago where. I, it, U.S. Admiral was saying, oh, we could definitely puncture a Chinese blockade. Uh, And so key to this battle would be our submarines versus their anti-submarine warfare. Mm. And this is a capability that right now is our biggest naval advantage. China is working on developing its anti-submarine warfare capacity in various ways. It's building its own submarines. Uh, it's building a lot more helicopters and planes that specialize in finding and destroying submarines. But it's not clear that China is all the way there yet. It, it might it might want at least another year or two to build up these capacities, these capacities and the training to to execute them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, is there a, and so. OK, so mm, there's no way to, I guess, keep Taiwan fed from. The east, right? So the ports aren't there. I mean, I guess the, the road system's probably not that great. Maybe you could fly in like West Berlin. You could fly in some essentials, right? Um, probably uh, not oil. I think that, that that would be pretty shaky. I mean, like the volume would be so 
low, it would be so expensive, so difficult. And then the, the, the planes themselves would be so vulnerable. Uh, I don't really think that flying in supplies is a viable option. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, so if the, U, you know, if the U S is, so it sounds like, I mean, it, it, let's assume let's, let's try the assumption that the U S doesn't want to directly fight China. And I think that's probably the most likely scenario. Um, what, what do you, um, you know, what can, what can Taiwan do? Is there a way without the, you know, without the U S you know, submarines coming to their rescue, is there a way, any way they could break this thing on their own? No. I mean, Taiwan's entire military strategy is basically built on holding out, defending itself for a few days to a few weeks until the, the U S cavalry can arrive. That's basically their entire plan. Yeah. And that's, but that seems like, it seems like a strange plan given that the U S doesn't have a official guarantee to fight for Taiwan, doesn't even, you know, recognize Taiwanese independence. So it seems to me to put a lot of uh, eggs in that basket, isn't it? Yeah. But what else can they do? They're an Island of 20 million people. Mm. There, there's a hundred, there, there's 1.5 billion Chinese people out there and they're right next to them. There's mm, only so they, much Taiwan can do. They could, I mean, they could spend more of their GDP on, uh, you know, they, they don't spend that much militarily. Um, they can, they can, and they probably should. Uh, I think Taiwan has been fairly lax in investing in its own defense over the last several years, the last decade. And in fact, the, the U.S. is kind of pissed at Taiwan right now over not taking its own defense seriously enough. Taiwan has tended to invest in these big, flashy military capabilities. For instance, Taiwan just commissioned its first amphibious transport ship. Mm. And that's an odd thing for Taiwan to invest in. Mm. The, what it ought to be interested in is defending its own island. It ought to be buying a lot of small things like, like uh, missiles. It, it ought to be buying anti-ship missiles by the bushel. But instead, it spent a lot of money on this amphibious transport ship like it wants to go on the offensive mm. in a war against China. Like I'm, th- I'm looking at Taiwan thinking, you think that you you think you need to invest in the capability to invade islands, to invade islands that China's holding and assault them? That's not really a wise use of their money. Yeah, I mean, is it that crazy? Because I think before the Ukraine uh, war started, people would have thought, oh, there's no way Ukraine could ever go on the offense. And then you know, just days a uh, day or two ago, there was uh, strikes in Belgorod, and this seems to be happening a lot could they i don't know have missiles you know i don't know about an invasion but could they do something that could potentially raise the cost of china of um, of doing a blockade or an invasion certainly certainly what taiwan ought to be doing is foregoing all the advanced splashy capabilities the amphibious transport docks the 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 jets the, the expensive fighters the ships of all kinds tanks what Taiwan really should be investing in is as many anti-ship missiles as it can get its hands on. Uh, it should also be getting HIMARS, HIMARS and, and all the, the rockets to be launched from it. It should be getting all of that smaller stuff. Uh, and th- this is related to what has lately come to be known as the porcupine strategy. Have you mm. heard that term? I've heard it, yeah. Yeah, it's the term that uh, some military guys have started throwing around lately. Basically. We want to make Taiwan into a giant porcupine bristling with anti-ship missiles. And that's that's what it should be doing. Yeah. Is there, I mean, is there um 
is there, I mean, is there support within Taiwan for, uh, is there some support for, for being reunited with China? I've seen polls that indicate maybe, I mean, I've seen a little bit of this, uh, it seems like the trend is in the direction towards more being separate from China, but yeah. I mean, could there, could, I mean, has China done it? So before this was an open question before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think a lot of people thought Russia had more support within Ukraine than it actually did, although it always had some support. Um, is you know, as China has China infiltrated Taiwan well? I mean, does it have uh, sleeper agents? Does it have uh, sympathizers? I mean, could it rely on you know Taiwan not not holding together an invasion, an invasion or a blockade? Well, I, I would be shocked if China had not infiltrated Taiwan to some degree. Now, how great is that degree? I, I don't get the impression that there is especially strong Taiwanese support to to be reunified with China. I mean, as you said, I, I think the trends currently are are more toward independence yeah. of one kind or another, official or unofficial. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. Yeah, it's such a different, uh, such a different situation, right? Because what? Why you know R- Russia was vulnerable uh, because you know when it invaded because it didn't have enough men and was covering all this land and so it could be hit by like these small roving you know bands and they, they could do you know uh very mobile small groups could attack russia uh, uh you know on the ocean i mean you sort of have to do you know you, you need the um you, can, you can't rely on sort of the, the populace to go out there and fight a sea battle right it's it's more a conventional military a military kind of thing um in which case it's uh in which case, you know, maybe maybe it's more difficult. Maybe that public support really doesn't matter all that much. It's just classic, you know, military uh, military capabilities. Right, but that's stage one. <clears throat> you know, if the amphibious assault goes well, there's going to be lots of Chinese boots on the ground, and at that point, the Taiwanese populace uh, is a key element. Mm. Their ability I, to fight and their yeah. willingness. Maybe, maybe. I mean, in, in the Ukraine situation. Um, you know, in the Ukraine situation, it was the fact that you know there was the you know there'd been some resistance within the occupied territories, but you know it's in the context of a uh, of a larger war going on, right? And there's still a Ukrainian government, right? Uh, if China, you know, took you know, it's like we don't know if there would have been a Ukrainian much of how much of a Ukrainian resistance there would have been uh, without you know uh, without a Ukrainian government. I mean, there was a Ukrainian government, and it seems like there's there's not a strict line between the government and the the uh, the insurgency. The insurgency, I mean, in, in parts of Ukraine, it's not like it's it's huge. I mean, it's it's like these these cities that Russia uh, takes. You know, there's assassinations and, and such, but it's not like it's not like when the U.S. like was occupying Baghdad, right? Where they like, you know, every, you know, the U.S. couldn't like, you know, drive down the street without getting uh, blown up or shot. So, um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe not, maybe it's, maybe it's not that hard to just hold up, especially if they have enough troops. Well, Russia had, you know, relatively small number of troops, especially if uh, China, you know, brought whatever, uh, you know, whatever, I don't know what uh, counterinsurgency, you know, uh, counterinsurgency theorists recommend, but it was whatever Russia had in Ukraine, it wasn't nearly enough. They had 150,000. They needed like, I don't know, uh, you know, 500,000 or a million or whatever the formula is. Maybe that's, maybe that, maybe China sends out enough men and maybe, maybe they're, maybe they don't have to deal with the, uh, much of a resistance. It's an open question right now uh, how many Taiwanese people would be willing to take up arms against a Chinese invasion uh, and how effective they would be. Uh, I don't think anybody can have a, a high degree of cons- confidence about those questions right now. I mean, we see signs uh, of, of 
of the Taiwanese becoming more willing to fight. And, and I think Ukraine has played a role in inspiring some of them to think that it's possible to yeah. effectively resist. I think I, I think that's I think that's right. I think the the sort of the mental, uh, you know, sort of the the, the sort of the the, the uh, spectacle of what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, you know, I think you, you know China would it, both sides learn from right. China's not going to make the same mistake as Russia. They're not going to send in like a hundred thousand troops and you know expect to be greeted as liberators and not even you know call it a war. They're not going to they're not going to do that strategy. Maybe they would have been stupid enough to do something like that before. And Taiwan maybe is going to see you know resistance as something that realistically uh, they can do once they've been <clears throat> once they've been conquered, right? Yeah, and you know China has a key military capability. In, that's relevant to all of this that, that I haven't mentioned so far. So might as well bring it up sooner than later. Mm. Taiwan is really going to have to rely for its civilians on its civilians for resistance and for whatever military capabilities are highly mobile and easy to disguise. Because any bases, any kind of fixed hard points uh, that 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 are storing equipment and, and weapons are probably going to be taken out relatively quickly. Because one of the main military capabilities that China's been investing in is its its intermediate range ballistic missiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is related to what China calls its well what what we call China's anti access area denial strategy, A A slash A D, and this is the reason why our own navy is not an enormous factor <laughs> in, in in this, not as much as you might expect. Because China has designed massive quantities of these intermediate range ballistic missiles that can take out a variety of these targets. So certainly in the early days of the war, uh, it would use its missiles to wipe out as many Taiwanese air defenses as possible, as as many of their anti-ship defenses as possible. Uh, So really, Taiwan would have to rely on whatever's mobile. That's what it Mm. really needs to invest in, mobile anti-ship capabilities. And this massive Chinese rocket arsenal, uh, ballistic missile arsenal, is also a key reason why the U.S. naval response, I've really been focusing on the submarines so far, because our submarine fleet is vast and highly advanced, and it's what we have that can get there. Uh, The U.S. Navy is built on the backbone of our carriers. Our aircraft carriers, especially our 11 or so super carriers are what have traditionally made us seem invincible to other people. You know, the United States has 11 super carriers uh, and and those can carry anywhere from 70 to 90 fighters at a time. And the next highest nation with the number of carriers, China has three right now. It just Mm -hmm. launched a third and the UK has two. I think India has two. So, you know, we have a lot more than anybody else. And we also have nine uh, light carriers, what we call them amphibious assault ships, but ours are capable of carrying fighters, helicopters and fighters. Uh, the F-35B is a modern fifth generation fighter uh, that is capable of of taking off vertic- uh, short and vertically mm. from a amphibious assault ship. So we have a ton of carriers. But the thing is that China has invested for a long time in these intermediate range ballistic missiles that have a range of, say, 4,000 kilometers or so. Remember, 
everybody other than us thinks in terms of kilometers. So that's where the analysis comes in. Okay. And so these things, we don't have these ourselves, by the way, because until recently, we were forbidden by treaty from developing our own intermediate range ballistic missiles. Yeah. Uh, us and Russia were bound to that treaty until- This I- was so Russia and Europe couldn't like be, you know, they couldn't fire missiles with Russia from Europe and vice versa. Yeah. But China had no such obligation. And so mm-hmm. it's been building up an arsenal of these things. Uh, the main ones to keep an eye on are, I think, the DF-21. That's its shorter range one with a range of maybe 2,000 kilometers. And then for our purposes, especially relevant is the DF-26. Uh, and the, there's a version of an anti-ship version of it called, I think, the DF-26D. Those things have a range of somewhere around 4,000 kilometers. Now, this tiny speck on the map here, let me zoom in and see if this is Guam. Oh, no, that's not Guam. Okay, let me look for Guam. Guam is too small to show up on the, on the map unless you look for it. Mm-hmm. Guam is the United States' key naval base in this region. Mm-hmm. And so how many kilometers so, is, that, is that from, uh, from China? It, sorry, what was that? How many kilometers is that from China? Is it that turns the- out to be basically the range of China's DF-26 uh ballistic missile they could fire so, so, they could fire it from sea too couldn't they they, they don't they have to cut no, the, the, these particular these ballistic missiles they're fired from land okay okay so so let's take let's measure this roughly okay so this is three thousand kilometers so guam is well within range uh-huh. of these chinese missiles and the gist of it china labels these things carrier killers for a reason mm-hmm. if it comes to blows we have kind of accepted that we cannot station our carrier strike groups within range of these missiles. We can't do that and expect them to survive. Mm. In the recent war games that were publicized pretty widely, we were expecting to lose two carrier strike groups within the first few weeks of a war. And if we lose even one of these things, that's viewed as a disaster for us. Mm. So what this means is that the U.S. cannot... um, they can't send they can't sign fighters or bombers basically right because well, they need bombers to are a different matter now because bombers yes, we can't yeah good because fighters fighters have a short range and for for our fighters to really be, be within range they'd have to be carried by our aircraft carriers mm. and our carriers can't really get within range but these aircraft i mean these aircraft carriers and the the basic guam they must have good air defenses right well air defenses can only be so good especially against ballistic missiles. Uh, you should separate missiles into cruise missiles and ballistic missiles. Uh, I think cruise missiles are easier to shoot down. They, they fly lower and slower. Ballistic missiles, I mean, they, they come in from high and fast. And I, I have a friend who's a rocket scientist. He works on Starlink right now. It's kind of sad. My, my friend's his skills are ideally suited to working on military projects, but he doesn't want to work on military mm. stuff. <laughs> But his career, he moves from place to place trying to avoid working on military stuff, and he can't avoid it. Yeah, Starlink ends up a military weapon. That turns out to be a crucial military capacity. (laughs) So my rocket scientist friend, he explained it to me once. He he works on, you know, rockets that are related to all these missile capabilities. And he doesn't really think that it can be that effective. He, He doesn't have great faith. And the ability of missiles to shoot down other missiles. So when uh, he told me that he told me that imagine that 
imagine that you're trying to shoot a bullet out of the air with another bullet. Very difficult. Mm -hmm. You can have some success, sure, but you really need a lot of volume. And the offense has the advantage. We, we've been talking in our last podcast about Ukraine. We were talking about where the offense has the advantage and where the defense has the advantage. Now, in many aspects in the Ukraine ground war, the defense is at an advantage. When we come to the issue of ballistic missiles and defense against ballistic missiles, trying to shoot them down, in this important aspect of naval warfare, it's really the offense that has the advantage. Mm. It's a lot easier to overwhelm a strike group of ships with ballistic missiles than it is for that group to effectively shoot those missiles down. Yeah. So the so what Russia was firing at Ukraine like recently, like a, a week or two ago, there were like 80, uh, 80 uh, missiles that, and like 40 of them were shot down or something. Those were all uh, those were all um, uh, cruise missiles. They were not ballistic. I think the majority of those were probably cruise missiles. Okay, so you get 50 per you get Ukraine can get 50 percent of those. If Russia had Russia just doesn't have enough ballistic missiles, they they would have fired ballistic missiles, which are just better if they could have. Right. Yeah, they're they're better, they're rarer. And by the way, the news just came out, I think, yesterday that Iran is probably selling a bunch of these cruise missiles and its ballistic missiles to Russia. Mm. So that's a relevant factor. And how many and how many, you know, how many uh, IBMs does uh, uh, does China have? It's hard to say, you know, that this is something that obviously it's keeping pretty close to the vest, but it's numbered in at least the several hundreds, if not the thousands. Mm. Okay, so you don't need a lot of them to get through to destroy a military base. You just, you know, you just need uh, you just need a few. And, you know, as as a sign of how worried we are about these. I think just a few years ago, the news came out. We, up until recently, our Air Force stationed a lot of bombers on Guam. And then a few years ago, the news came out, oh, we're no longer going to station bombers on Guam. It's fine. We can put them somewhere else. Mm. Well, that was because we knew that Guam would be overwhelmed with these intermediate range ballistic missiles in the early stages of any war. Yeah. But so we are yeah. worried enough about these that we've decided we can no longer station bombers on Guam. Yeah. And so the so the US, okay, so the US situation is if it wants to help, um its aircraft carriers are useless. It's its fighter pilots are uh you know, it's not going to have uh, the fighters are not going to be very useful. Um they have submarines um which are helpful which are potentially uh helpful. Um and then you know, what about like regular like cruisers destroyers sh ships like that th th those can those can be part of it if, if they wanted right well those are also vulnerable to uh, the massive chinese rocket arsenal what if they're, they're uh, aren't they mobile i mean isn't aren't they harder to hit than uh, yeah they're, they're mobile so look certainly there are many considerations here I, I don't want to exaggerate it and say that any u.s strike group is an automatic goner there are factors you have to consider uh, the, the technical military term for this is called the kill chain. Uh, mm. There is a chain of events that has to happen in order for the, these ships to end up getting killed by the Chinese. Uh, and the various steps, you know, I'm probably not going to get every step accurately. But the important thing is that first, the Chinese have to be able to spot where our ships are. Mm. And, and, you know, they use satellites. They, they'd use various underwater sensors. That they would try to detect them. Uh, they'd use radar and other capabilities. 
So first step is they've got to find our ships. And we have various methods we would use to try to prevent them from finding our ships. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this links into the whole issue of, of Trump creating the Space Force. And I think some people laughed at the idea of a Space Force. No, the Space Force is important because, because satellites play a central role in, in, in identifying these ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so our, our defenses, before you even get to the level of anti-ballistic missile defense, where, where our cruisers and destroyers would try to shoot down the Chinese missiles, our, our best hope really would be trying to, trying to prevent the Chinese from really effectively identifying our ships. You know, we can't just assume that the Chinese would know where our ships are, that there is a game to be played there that, that we could do, that we could mm-hmm. play with some effectiveness. <clears throat> So why is it, let me ask you this question. Why doesn't the U.S., you know, if the U.S. doesn't want to get directly involved with China, but it wants Taiwan to defend itself, why doesn't it just give Taiwan, like, half of its submarines? Why doesn't it just give them all of this, their submarines and let them do it? That's an interesting question. So first of all, there's the issue of training. It just takes a long time to train the, the sailors to, to man all of these things. Second, there's the question of escalation. Hmm. Uh, if if we did just hand over all all these ad, advanced submarines, I mean nuclear attack submarines, that's some of the most advanced military technology in the world. We just inked a deal called AUKUS between the United States, the UK, and Australia for the UK uh, for the US to give Australia nuclear attack submarines. China was not at all happy about this deal. Nuclear attack? I mean, are they are, are they are they nuclear nuclear powered or they're for nuclear use? Ah, so so we have to distinguish uh, attack submarines from bo- ballistic missile submarines. Uh-huh. Uh, so the the super secret quiet subs that you put the nuclear missiles on to annihilate another nation mm. in what might be called a potentially second strike capability. Mm. Uh, these are not the main ones that we have to consider in all of this. Th- th- those subs are just off on their own chilling out deep in the ocean to annihilate any nation that tries to nuke us. Mm. Uh, that's the role that the ballistic uh, nuclear submarines play. Th- they are a crucial element that gives us what we call second strike capability. If somebody nukes us first, they don't nuke us first because they know even if they annihilate us, our subs are out there to get revenge mm. in a second strike. That is separate from the main consideration here, which are the attack submarines. Mm. Uh, and those are the bulk of our submarine force. You know, we've got 60 or so of those, something like that. Uh, and those are nuclear powered, but they don't have nuclear weapons on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that nuclear power is import- an important capability because it allows them to stay at sea without replenishment for longer. Mm. That's one of the key uh, reasons why the nuclear element is important to those. Yeah, it's confusing to call it nuclear attack submarine. You can see why. Yeah, it sounds they like attack it, other uh, ships. Yeah, they're meant to attack other ships, not uh-huh. not other countries. Uh, well, with nuclear weapons, it sounds like with nuclear weapons, whatever they're using to attack, it sounds like they're okay. Got it. Okay, so the you know, so it's escalation. But I mean, I wonder like if it's okay. So it's escalation, but like it. I mean, you worry about escalation uh, from the American perspective because you're worried about you having to be involved in the war, right? Um, and so, like, you give if you give Taiwan 
the submarines. Maybe the war becomes more likely, um, but then you don't, they can fight it better and you don't have to be involved. Um, and, you know, I guess it would, I guess the, the timing of this is difficult because you would, uh, you know, the timing of this is difficult because, by, by, you know, from the time you start doing this to the time that they actually get the submarines and figure out how to use them, there's some delay there. Um, but also maybe Taiwan does not want this. I mean, they would rather, you know, for them, the best case scenario is not provoking China and then having uh, the U.S. come to their aid. And they don't want to reduce the odds of the u.s coming to their aid that, that that's the worst of all worlds you know um, i don't so, think it's, i don't think it's really a realistic option for us to, to just hand taiwan a bunch of nuclear attack submarines first of all it's just so much easier said than done they they wouldn't know how to use them if we gave them mm. and well they're smart they're Chinese. and, and it's they not it's out. not like it would tip the military balance you know 10 20 nuclear attack subs that that wouldn't tip it uh, and we, we'd be better able to use them than Taiwan would. And we would be able to use them in conjunction with, say, our bombers. Our bombers would be another key capability. Uh, they, they'd have a very long range, so they would be able to contribute to any fight. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really just needlessly dividing our strength. If, if we even attempted something like that, it, yeah. it wouldn't move the needle. It, it would make us weaker overall. Yeah, I mean, assuming that the U.S., you know, assuming that the U.S., uh, wants to wants to get involved which you know we we don't know um there's not a hope that taiwan could hold out on its own without the u.s mm-hmm. if the u.s is not fighting there's no discussion okay so there's taiwan no yeah there's no point in giving them nuclear submarine nuclear attack submarines I, I i see um okay so the uh the south china sea um does, does these you know the artificial islands that they're building uh, uh are, is this you know is this relevant to the taiwan thing or is it just about pushing around those other countries down there I think this is mostly a separate situation. This is a separate territorial interest that China is pursuing. I I don't think, I mean, look, so these artificial islands, it's constructed, it's loaded them up with missiles, with, with, uh, with it's both. Is it both the Parcel Islands and the Spratly Islands, right? Well, so, so. These are different matter from the artificial islands. The artificial where are they? Where are the artificial? Aren't they close to? They're closer on there, right? Uh, they're kind of scattered throughout the, mm. the region. They're not on the map, I, I presume. Now they do have potentially some relevance. That there is an issue we haven't discussed yet that is relevant to the military angle here. Uh, so that there are a couple important things we haven't discussed yet. So so let me just get to them in order as, as kind of a preview. Mm. That's yeah. kind of a now, preview. Chris is Chris is going through the yeah. Chris is going through the map for people who are not uh, watching the video. But yeah, go ahead. So we haven't talked yet about the relevance of the Indian Ocean region to any of these conflicts, mm-hmm. and and we will get to that because it turns out what I've been saying is that the United States can't really effectively beat China in a naval battle near its shores, the East China Sea and the South China Sea, thanks to its anti-access area denial strategy, we can't effectively get that close. And the closer we get, the easier it's going to be for it to spot our ships and and wipe them out. Uh, We also haven't talked about the relative ship capacities and the ship building capacities. So let me turn to that next. But as a preview, as a preview, it turns out that our greatest advantage is that we probably could beat China in a naval battle in the Indian Ocean region. 
And so that turns out to be our best response. If they invade or blockade Taiwan, we can cut them off with a counter blockade, cutting off their oil supply lines to the Middle East. We, we could blockade them in, in reverse, basically. And that'll turn out to be our best response. I mean, does that, does that matter? I mean, you, you still have, you know, you have land. Um, you have, the, you know, the rest of the world. <laughs> it seems like you blockade. Yeah, well, well, let's get to that. Let's get to that later. But first, yeah. because that's more toward the end of the story about what options are available to us. But first, let's let's fully flesh out the problems that we face. So I've mentioned one major problem we face, which is China's anti-access area, area denial. It's this vast array of intermediate range ballistic missiles. Our, our fleet is designed around aircraft carriers, and our aircraft carriers would have a lot of trouble getting into the fight. You know, our simulations say that we're looking at losing two aircraft carriers and all of their escorts very quickly in any war. And yeah, maybe we have 11 of these. But when you compare the, the US Navy and the Chinese Navy, a lot of people make the mistake of just looking at the ship counts. Mm. And they don't realize everything China has is in the area of the fight. Mm. The United States is a global, what's called a blue water Navy. And we've got all kinds of commitments with our ships all around the globe. You know, at any one time of our 11 carriers or so or so a bunch yeah. of them are in for refit and repairs and then you're looking at seeing at least one at least one in the Medita- mediterranean area maybe you're looking at having one somewhere around the middle east uh maybe maybe in the arabian sea or somewhere near there maybe you'd have one up up near the baltic sea something like that so our carriers are, are really split our navy is split so you can't just add up the ships and say, who's got more? Everything China has is in the area of the fight. Mm. Ours is all split up. Other thing that you've got to look at when it comes to these ship capacities, you've got to look at the raw numbers of ships. Wait, but you, could, you could just move them. You could just, they're ships. You could just move them. Well, yeah, but then, but then we don't have them in the areas where, where we need them uh, yeah. to provide protection against, against say, Russia. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you could you could maybe neglect the threat from Iran. I mean, during this war, that the idea that Iran's going to invade its neighbors, so maybe maybe you don't need the Middle East. I don't so know where else they would be. We would have a degree of flexibility where we could just abandon temporarily some of our defense commitments that our Navy has in other regions of the world. But to a certain extent, you know, we're we're using the carriers elsewhere, and to a certain extent, we want to use some of them elsewhere. Okay. Now. Let's talk about raw numbers. Much has been made lately of the fact that China is now the largest navy in the world by ship count. Now, what what people will often say is that you can't just look at the number of ships. You got to look at their quality. You got to look at how big they are, too. Uh, The tonnage of the U.S. Navy still at least doubles China's. And that's largely because of our our carriers and our amphibious assault ships. Mm -hmm. But China has been rapidly building its navy over the last decade. It has really surged ahead. And every time you look at the situation, every time you check back in, it turns out that China has built new ships faster than we had anticipated. And it continues that trend line. I think the news just came out a few weeks ago. A a picture of a Chinese shipyard came out where it's got a clutch of another six destroyers that it's building in that one single shipyard. Now, yeah. let me quantify that for you. 
the United States, uh, the other than our carriers, the backbone of our Navy is our destroyer fleet. We have, I think, 70 or so. Can you pull up a picture of a destroyer? I want to see what destroyers look like. Okay. Uh, but let me look up. Let me show you the our, our main destroyers, our Arleigh. Our Arleigh Burke destroyers. Mm-hmm. So these are our fighters. Uh, our fighters, in the sense that th- these are our main muscle. Uh-huh. But what do they shoot? Do they have cannons? What do they? What are the, how are the cannons? What do they? What do they? Sh- what do they shoot with? What's their? Is it just artillery? Well, all, all okay. So, so really, it comes down to missiles. I mean, ev- every ship does have big guns. You can see the big gun right here. Yeah. But that's that's not the main consideration. In, in these battles, it really comes down to the missiles, uh, the missiles that we, we shoot them with and, and the missiles that we defend against their missiles with. And planes can take off from there, I assume, right? Well, these, these destroyers, they don't carry fighters. They do carry a couple helicopters. And mm. helicopters are an important element of all this, an important capability, uh, because helicopters add a lot of flexibility to the capability of the destroyer. Uh, helicopters turn out to be one of the keys to anti-submarine warfare. Basically, in the grand scheme of, uh, in the grand chain of being, navally, submarines rule the seas. Submarines eat everything else. Submarines eat all the other ships. Uh, they they sink them, and they can't easily be sunk or spotted by them. But anti-submarine warfare helicopters eat submarines mm. because they can they can try and find the submarines and. A, a helicopter can kill a submarine a lot more easily than the submarine can kill the helicopter. Uh-huh. And so, this, the how? Do, what are they? What are the heli, What are these anti-submarine helicopters? How do they? How do they? Do, what's the technology involved? Uh, so I'm I'm still looking into the details a lot more, but there there are various ways. I mean, so the the, the destroyers and the helicopters they both use uh, radar. I, I think the, the destroyers especially would try and use. Uh, well, maybe sonar, mm. and uh, I, I think that there are kinds of depth buoys that the helicopters w- would uh, sink down that they would try to identify, that would might maybe acoustically try to identify the submarines. And apart from the helicopters and the destroyers, there are just underwater microphones that are an important element of all this that, that both sides have kind of planted everywhere, underwater <coughs> microphones that are trying to pick up the noise from any enemy. So submarines have a special noise that other things, presumably they do. They have a motor or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think one of the advantages of the nuclear attack submarines is that they're very quiet. Mm. Okay. So these destroyers, uh, these are the backbone of our fleet, other than the carriers. And one of their main tasks, you know, a destroyer can do it all. It's a well-rounded ship, large, well-rounded ship. It can do every kind of mission. Uh-huh. So how many? So how many do we have, and how many is China have, and how many are they building? So China has a lot. Uh, so let, let me go to look at destroyer fleet strength by country. This is something that really only only the uh-huh. big guys have. These. So as as you can see, th- this uh, this site is saying the U.S. has ninety two of them. This is actually including our cruisers. This is including every country's cruisers as destroyers. Cruisers are a rarer class of ship that are larger than destroyers, and cruisers are kind of specialized these days for anti-air defense. So 
in any of a U.S. in a U.S. carrier strike group, there will always be one cruiser, at least one cruiser. Uh, we have the Ticonderoga class cruisers, uh, and they bristle with anti-air. Yeah. So combined destroyers and cruisers, we see U.S. as 92, China 41, uh, Japan 36, Russia 15, South Korea 12, France 10. India and the numbers 10. really drop off. Yes. UK perhaps. 6. Okay. All right. And so, yeah. And so, uh, so this is recent, you're saying China is catching up. China is catching up. And th these numbers, th these are good to give you a rough picture, but th they aren't quite up to date. And so they, they don't fully reflect China's shipbuilding capacity. So China, I would say China has been the last few years building at, at least five or six destroyers per year, plus two or three cruisers. Uh, China has kind of the best new ship on the seas. It's, it's sometimes, China calls it a destroyer. We call it a cruiser because it's big. It's the Type 55 destroyer. This is the newest, baddest thing on the high seas right now. Mm. And, and China is building a lot of these. Mm. What's, what makes it cool? What makes it so cool? So it's it's somewhat stealthy and it's big and it's modern. It's got like the most modern radar. Uh, it, Return it of the Dreadnought. The there. Return of the Dreadnought. The Dreadnought was these awesome giant right, ships that apparently they all got, uh, weren't they all destroyed in World War I? Huh. Yeah, the dreadnought. I mean, I think those. Yeah, those weren't around by the time of World War II. I think that they might have played a role in World War One. Yeah, but these things. Uh, or they were. Things, they, I think they were. I think they were. Yeah, they, I think they. It was. Um, no, I think by. I think they were. I think they were. They they thought they might have a role for them. I don't know, but so it was some either World War One or World War Two. They were like sort of just discredited as a. I think it was. I think it might have been World War Two. It might have been the Navy. Um, uh, might have been the Pacific. Uh, battle where people yeah they weren't around by world war ii so it must have been world it must have been world. yeah the submarines i think the submarines killed them i think that's what killed them in world war one because the air power wasn't as developed so so these things china's been pumping them out lately i think it has maybe somewhere around eight active right now and it's still building two at least two or three each year uh these are china's cruisers and so i would say between its destroyers and its cruisers China's pumping out at least 10 of those each year. How many are the US, the U.S. doing? The U.S. is capable of making right now about 1.5 destroyers per year. And we are not producing cruisers. We are actually beginning to retire all of our cruisers. Mm. We have somewhere around 20 cruisers, the Ticonderogas. But we, what you have to understand is that they're ancient. They're pretty much all at least 30 years old right now. And they've got a max lifespan of 40. And I think they need they generally need a bit of renovation to reach that max lifespan of 40. So the US is in a really big bind right now when it comes to the short-term capabilities navally, the numbers over the next several years. A key element of all this, when kind of figuring out the question of what China's window is to take military action against Taiwan, China's Navy is growing by leaps and bounds. It's adding at least 10 big ships every year. The United States is actually losing big mm. ships each year for the next five years or so. This is part of what's called our divest to invest plan. Mm. Basically, the Navy is starved of money. There's this kind of dumb thing going on where the US has these three military branches, Army, uh, Navy, and Air Force. And we have decided for a long time to give them all equal funding. 
Mm. We, we don't look at it like, oh, what do we need more? Do we need yeah. more of a Navy? Do we need more of an army? We mm. say they're all clamoring to be fed. And we, we have said, I love, I love you all equally. <laughs> Well, that's that's how we divide the funding. We say yeah, that seems dumb. Yeah, what are the odds they all need the same? Yeah, the same thing exactly. And so our navy just doesn't have enough money, and so it said, "Hey, if if you want new ships, if you want us to design and build new ships, the only way we can do it is by making cuts." And so what we've decided to do is retire a lot of our ships, decommission many of our ships over the next several years, so that we. Instead of pouring in money into renovating the Ticonderogas so they can limp along for another five, maybe 10 years, we decided to just retire them early. They're old. We're going to use that money toward designing and building new ships, which will not be active until the 2030s. So mm. our Navy is shrinking. We are getting rid of our cruisers. We've, we've already started getting rid of the Ticonderogas starting several months ago. I think we've decommissioned at least a couple of them by now. And over the next several years, we'll be getting rid of the remaining 20. And so this is kind of funny. Uh, after China's naval exercises where it simulated a partial blockade of Taiwan, a couple of weeks later, the United States sent our military response by sending a couple of the Ticonderogas cruising through the Taiwanese Strait. It was kind of our warning message. And it was meant to be a kind of aggressive warning message because these are the biggest, the biggest warships we have. Can, we, can you pull them up? I want to see what they look like. Uh -huh. So we, we sent a pair of these. We sent a pair of these cruising through the Taiwanese Strait. Yeah, they don't look as high tech as the new Chinese ones. They are old. Yes. They're all in their mid-30s, roughly. Uh -huh. And the funny thing is, this was meant to be our big warning to, to China. Oh, look, we're sending two of our biggest ships right through the strait. Funny thing is about this threat, if China just waits a few years, we're going to retire those ships ourselves. Yeah. We're threatening them with ancient ships that we are about to get rid of that will no longer be available if it comes to a fight. So people so that, have that's really so kind of a symbol of, of our toothless empire. Yeah. So the U, I mean the, the people, the people in the U.S. I mean they're they're so worried about China. They're passing, uh, you know, they're doing stuff on the chips front. Uh, they're investing in science and tech to counter China. I mean, does anybody are these uh, anybody listening to these arguments and advocating investing more in the Navy? Not enough people. It, it is a hard sell to to say that we need to invest a lot more in the Navy. Big question is where does it come from? Uh, I think right now. Yeah, I, I think in the, the latest budget, the, the Department of Defense allocation was actually increased and it was, it was getting somewhere above $800 billion. And so people look at that and say, the military industrial complex is a problem. It's already getting too much money. You know, especially people on the left will, will say, no, we need to have a conversation about cutting defense mm -hmm. funding, not a conversation about increasing it. And, and the bigger problem is just the question of allocation. It's, I think that there's a very clear need for the Navy to be getting the lion's share of the funding, but we have decided we love all the three branches equally. We, we will not determine allocation <clears throat> of defense funding by whether we need a Navy or, or an army more. I mean, look, an army in a fight against Taiwan, I mean, just look at this big ocean here. 
how, mm-hmm. how much how much is our army going to be helping us in that fight? Mm-hmm. It's clearly the Navy that that needs the the lion's share of the money. Yeah, and I mean, there's a norm. There's a normative thing there about how much we should be uh, thinking about defending Taiwan. I you know, I don't want to get into that in this conversation. I like this just as sort of a descriptive one, and maybe maybe we'll do the normative and political stuff uh, uh, some other some other time. Um, yeah, so. It seems like, I mean, people have talked about, I mean, there was a famous article by Ross uh, Douthat once, um, not that long ago, maybe a year or two or three years ago. I, you know, time, time, just, I'm not good with, you know, uh, keeping up with what arguments were made, but it was, it was within the last few years. And basically he was saying that, um, uh, that China might just have a window to conquer Taiwan because China is having a uh, a, a declining population. Now, I mean, the, uh, because the birth rate is low now, I, and my my response to that is: look at the Taiwanese birth rate. I mean, if it's just a narrow, you know, it's just a uh, comparative sake. You know, Taiwan is uh, reportedly shrinking faster than than China. Um, but you know, the idea was basically they might have a, a window, and you know, and the other thing that people could say is that the U.S. and Taiwan are coming closer together. Like the you know the Biden administration, uh, particularly, they seem to be inching towards uh, greater cooperation. There's you know, more of a political imperative to sort of defend Taiwan. I think that, you know, the odds of the U.S. coming to the aid of Taiwan have gone up um, than, you know, compared to what it was, you know, five, one year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. I think the trajectory is closer U.S.-Taiwanese relations. Um, and so, you know, that's all, that's all the case for uh, China having a small window. But then, um, what you're talking about seems much more important, which is like the U.S. can love Taiwan all at all at once. Um, if China's milit- if China's naval advantage is growing uh, uh, year by year, then you know China time is on China's side, not on not on Taiwan and the U.S. Right? To a degree. So I do give some credence to these factors like uh, China's demographic decline that that's approaching and its potential economic decline. Uh, that we're seeing evidence of. Uh, so I do tend to believe that China probably has an, a window, an optimal window for military action that occurs. That well, Taiwan, I mean, Taiwan's population matters too, right? Taiwan TFR is like 0.9. I mean, it, it's really low. I mean, so Taiwan is, you know, growing very old and if anything at a faster rate. It is a relevant consideration, but I, I think you'd compare You'd compare Chinese demographics to U.S. demographics more than Chinese to Taiwanese. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. And so I I do lend some credence to these ideas that that China is going to have various forces moving against it uh, as we approach the 2030s, demographic, economic. But there are some analyses that have been coming out lately that saying this makes China more dangerous in the short and midterm, not less. Because historically, there are analyses that that a power is less likely to take military action if it foresees itself just going growing stronger indefinitely. Mm, right. if, if, if it's growing stronger indefinitely, you know, just be patient, wait, and, and then keep throwing your weight around and bully yeah. people. Well, I think this you. is what happened with Russia and Ukraine. I think that what Russia saw that Ukraine was coming closer to the U.S., the U.S. was arming it better. Uh, Ukraine was building a real military. Uh, the drone, the drone situation. There was a great article by uh, Rob Lee. I forget where he wrote it, but th- th- this was, I think, what was happening with Russia, right? I think Russia saw that Ukraine was sort of shifting out of its orbit, politically and sort of militarily. It was going to be, it was going to be in a worse situation as time went on. Yeah. And so I lend some, I give credence to that, 
And I think that as far as the naval situation goes, it's a key consideration that trends favor China if it just waits a few years as it, its Navy continues to grow rapidly by leaps and bounds. And we actually are intending to shrink our Navy. We are beginning to shrink our Navy and our, our, our Navy is going to reach a low point somewhere around 280 ships by the year 2027. And so I'm really looking at somewhere around 2027 as the window of maximum danger because we've kind of telegraphed our intentions when it comes to building ships and retiring them, you have no choice but to telegraph your intentions because these plans take, take years in advance to design and implement. And so everybody knows that our Navy is going to be at its weakest sometime around 2027. And there's really not much we can do about that. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, and the economic, the economic growth thing, I mean, China has had, you know, 40 years of, you know, catching up and that a bad, like, you know, recently uh, the zero COVID stuff. But I think that, you know, they think, you know, I don't think they've given up on the idea that they're going to keep growing at a faster rate than the, than the U S I mean, I think they they have reason to think that they, they might be able to. So yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think the zero COVID thing is just uh, so interesting because it's, it's harmful to economic growth. And if you just see, if you think that China wants to maximize sort of its, you know, power, uh, globally and it's, you know, military capabilities, you'd think they would prioritize that a lot, but they seem to, they seem to not, I mean, they're explicitly saying we're not prioritizing economic growth. And it seems like a lot of the things they're doing are is consistent with that. So, I mean, what do you make of that? It seems, it seems a little bit crazy. It, it is a bit of a puzzle. I mean, if I were in charge, that's probably not the way I would play it. Uh, yeah. but they have their own priorities and I am at a loss to explain why zero COVID is such an incredibly high priority for them. Uh, do you have an explanation? Uh, I'm actually, I was going to write a, um, I was thinking about writing a, a sub stack on this and I think there's three, I, I guess I'll preview it now. Um, if I actually do it, I, I still don't, I always have like 10, you know, articles in my head and then I sort of, I pick one. So this, this is one that might actually be an article. Um, there's, you know, there's a few theories. Number one, uh, all they care about is maintaining control of the population. Um, the zero COVID is actually very useful for that. So they have these, uh, you know, QR codes that you have to scan everywhere you go. There was a story in the New York Times that somebody, um, you know, people were trying to protest the government and they changed their QR code from green to red. And when it changes to red, apparently like you can't be out in public or something, you have to like isolate. And, you know, they didn't plan this probably from the beginning, but what a, you know, what a power in the hands of the government to say, okay, public health, Chris Nicholson, you go home for, you go home for a month. You just have that regime. That's, that's a lot of power. Um, that's, you know, very, you know, that's, that's a lot to give up. Um, so, you know, it's a social uh, stability kind of thing. Um, you know, people say, you know, people say uh, stuff like, oh, they, um, they, you know, zero COVID is their pride. And like, you know, they want to prove that they're, uh, uh, you know, they want to prove that their, um, you know, their system is better than the US. Like, okay, I think you made your point that you can handle COVID better than the US. So I don't know why you have to keep doing that, you know, indefinitely, it just seems sort of crazy, and it discredits the system. So I, I don't know if that like that argument makes sense. So I think the control argument makes sense. I think the argument that, um, you know, it's just a national pride thing. I, you know, we just had the, uh, the, uh, communist party conference, uh, conference It's still going on, right. The, the, uh, yeah. the uh, national sure. Congress. And so that's one of the theories that it just has to, when Xi Jinping gets his, um, third term, 
uh, they'll switch off. So it's just a personal accomplishment for Xi Jinping. That's a possibility. So if, if you know, we'll, we'll know more in the next uh, months and, you, you know, the next year or so. Um, and so maybe, yeah, so maybe the, that political argument would make sense if we see, um, if we see uh, them relent, if they keep going, you know, we'll, we'll have to come to it. If they keep going after Xi Jinping is, you know, securing his third term, we'll have to keep, uh, you know, we'll have to think about the other theories. So the, the other theories are number one, control, um, and then the other, you know, third theory. So again, so just going back, number one, control. Two, uh, you know, uh, this pride and the accomplishment through his hero COVID. Three, and you know, this is maybe like, this is like maybe the funniest, but sort of like the most horrifying possibility of all. Maybe they just really think it's a good policy. Maybe they just want to save as many old people as possible, and they think you know, economic growth and living is like over, you know, living uh, a good life is overrated, and they just, you know, they like. There's a quote from uh, Xi Jinping um, in his uh, last uh, speech um, at the Congress where he's just like, you know, we put lives, you know, we put lives over. Over uh, you know other considerations, and we show the you know superiority of our system or something like that. Like, what if this guy actually believes that? Like, maybe he maybe he does. Um, and so that's another possibility that I haven't seen people take seriously. But it's just like, yeah, they're just hysterics about COVID, and they just want to you know they just want to protect their population. Yeah, you know, we'll have to see how it develops. They always have the choice of reversing course or softening the zero COVID approach. If if they think it comes to affect them too much economically, and if it starts to uh, infringe on their military development too. Or now, maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe it doesn't have to, but maybe it doesn't have to be a, a trade a trade off because it's just like you know they 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 really prioritize saving lives COVID. They really prioritize the military, so we're just going to see a lot of the budget go towards the military no matter what, even if the growth is relatively low. And they're going to sacrifice a lot of GDP for uh, COVID too, right? I mean, they're just going to something where they don't care about growth and they're going to focus on these two priorities. It's certainly possible, but you know, Biden's aggressive semiconductor warfare starts to come into play here because. Whatever margin for error China had economically and military begins to shrink when you now consider this new semiconductor warfare we're playing against them, where we're basically trying to cut them off at the knees with the entire semiconductor supply chain. And I think that's closely linked to the military situation that I've been laying out for you. I have been laying out a grim picture where the naval momentum, the military momentum, is entirely on China's side and against us. And I see Biden's semiconductor maneuver in in the light of all that, where basically we are saying we cannot catch up to China as far as the shipbuilding trend goes. We cannot. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the the industrial base here to create more shipyards and and staff them. The, The staffing is a major issue, especially. It takes a lot of work to train the people to be able to build these ships. China is exceptional at that. China is the world's leader in shipbuilding, civilian and military, and they're integrated. We just cannot catch up in that battle. And so what I think we've decided to do is slow China down. And we're slowing them down by starving them of the advanced ships that they need to create the most advanced ships and planes and and rockets and missiles. That's how I see the move. It's, Mm. It's a move of desperation. We cannot catch up. And so we are slowing them down. Yeah. I mean, the the problem is this is a very technologically, I mean, capable uh, country. China, I mean, it passed the US on the Nature Index. So the Nature Index takes into account just num- not a number of scientific publications, but also um, uh, uh, their, you know, how cited they are. So, how, you know, 
as as far as we have you know measures of uh uh as far as we have measures of you know comparative and uh, scientific you know output um you know things like number of uh engineers they're they're graduating a year i mean some of the biggest tech companies are are from you know china alibaba and you know these uh, uh huawei i mean they they're they're very capable um you know there's a lot of people it's a big it's a big market um yeah, I mean, in the long run, I, I I don't I don't know. I mean, that's a it's a very smart country with a lot of people, and it's very good at science and technology. And you know, I I, I you know, could the U.S. and Europe be ahead of them forever? Um, you know, it seems forever seems Pro- probably not. But in the short to midterm, we can hurt them badly by starving mm, them yeah. of so the, 10, 10, 20 years, maybe you hurt them. And then who knows what happens then, you know, in a hundred years, China maybe is destined to be the world leader in scientific innovation, but you know, who knows what's going to happen by then. So at the center of all of this, of course, is a thing we haven't mentioned. I think we've probably assumed that our reader, our listeners know this. Our entire interest in Taiwan is about its semiconductor fabrication capabilities. You know, we may say it's about defending a fellow democracy. That's just kind of the polite thing we thing we say publicly because it sounds a little crass to say we need them for their semiconductor factor. Well, I, I, I actually, I disagree. I, I think that I, I, you know, I, maybe I think that emotion have, plays a larger role here than, than you do. I mean, did Ukraine have some, what was the, you know, why were we so, you know, why were we so uh, interested in defending Ukraine? Right. I mean, it, it, there wasn't semiconductors. It was more, you know, rules-based international order, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I, I think I think there's an emotional aspect here of defending democracies against tyrannies. There is that aspect, but there's the other element of the equation, which is that we don't take incredible risk by defending Ukraine from Russia. Uh, uh, us uh, fighting some kind of proxy war with Ukraine, that's an entirely different animal from us getting into any kind of fight with China. China uh, no, I mean, I mean look, there's a risk. Opponent. Yeah, I mean, there's a risk of you know escalate. I mean, escalate. You think the risk of nuclear escalation you know, is pretty is pretty low. I mean, this Russia thing could get ugly. I mean, there there have been caused. There have been it's economic true, costs, but we, but we can manage that. But the, the a central difference that I'm pointing to is that China is a much more fearsome opponent than Russia. No, I don't think that means emotion can't have a. <laughs> can't have it, a it plays a role. role. It plays yeah. a role. But really, the main reason that we are even willing to contemplate a war with China is because the majority of the world's most advanced semiconductors are built in Taiwan by TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. That's where they all come from. We are 10 years behind. Intel is probably at least 10 years behind TSMC when it comes to fabricating the most advanced uh, chips on on the smallest nodes. Uh, Intel- But but you're you're talking about- about, uh... You're talking about, you know, the what's going to happen to the Navy by 2027, 2030. Okay, we're 10 years by. Okay, just don't do, you know, do that. First of all, I mean, why don't you just buy them? Uh, if China takes over, why not just buy it from China instead of buying it from, from Taiwan? Oh, right. Because then, because then our military is completely at China's mercy. If, it, okay. if we're buying all the key ch- chips we need from China, that means China's, you know, got us by the short hairs, kind of. Tell me about the chips. Well, what's what's so great about these chips? The, 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 like my computer right now. The, does this have one of these chips? That the, the, does it need a semiconductor? Is that is that everything? Well, what what are they? Oh, well, certainly, they it's, it's in everything from our computers to our smart TVs to our fridges to our cars. Uh, the semiconductor. And what's so special about Taiwan? Why does why can only Taiwan do this? Because this is the pinnacle of human technology. This mm. is the cutting edge the very most difficult thing to develop. And the supply chains for these things are very complex. 
it, it doesn't just require the most advanced human technology to manufacture the chips. It requires the most advanced human technology to manufacture the machines that manufacture. And it just chips. happened that the, the Taiwanese built the, built the most advanced company. And, and the Taiwanese happened to be the specialists at it. Uh, the, the only other ones in the world who are even within, within fighting distance of that are, are the South Koreans with a Samsung. Samsung also has some capability. Isn't there, isn't there a company in the Netherlands? I've, I've heard the company in now, the Netherlands. The, the company too. you're thinking of is the Dutch company ASML. ASML does not manufacture the advanced chips themselves. ASML manufactures the, the machines that produce the chips. Mm, ASML okay. is a key company in all of this in the supply chain. Uh, it, it, it has essentially a monopoly on the Let's see. I, I think it's extreme ultraviolet lithography, uh, use, using lasers to to print chips. Basically, as I think what it amounts to, uh, it's more complex than that. But ASML has a monopoly on the machines that produce the most advanced chips, mm -hmm. and that's a large part of the warfare right now. The economic warfare between us and China, we and and Europe together have basically starved China of ASMLs equipment. That's one of our main tactics. China is trying to improve its indigenous chip manufacturing capabilities. Uh, it's part of its Made in China 2025 plan that has been embarked on for a while now. And I think that China has actually had some success lately. Mm. There was kind of shocking news that came out a month or two ago, where the news came out that China had developed indigenously at, at least some seven nanometer chips, which is not quite at the state of the art, but it's near to the state of the art and it's closer to the state of the art than we ourselves are. Mm. We're, we're at maybe it, in the United States mainland, we're, we're at maybe the 10 or 14 nanometer node. And so China shocked the world by saying it had developed some of these seven nanometer chips. To be clear, we don't know how many of these it can produce at scale. That is an unknown element of the equation. Uh, but it seems that China effectively used some kind of industrial espionage to be able to suddenly advance several years in its chip producing capabilities. And I think that that seven nanometer chip that China produced a couple months ago, I think that that's a part of the story to Biden's current moves. We're kind of alarmed at the speed of China's progress in this area. And so we're deciding to cut it off at the knees and annihilate its supply chain. Mm -hmm. This is a, and this is a matter of what, what uh, TSMC, what Samsung have is intellectual property. They have some, they formula. have the IP, they yeah. have the engineering expertise that they've got the world's top engineers and they have the facilities themselves that, that produce these chips. Mm -hmm. And the facilities are engineering uh are these things that are themselves hard to build that you, the you can't just they're they're called fabs and they are very hard to build they take years to build uh we are we have made deals the united states has made, made deals with tsmc and i think samsung to build some fabs here especially in arizona and people will talk about that but those fabs are pretty small they're, they're pretty small and i don't think that they're making the chips on the most advanced nodes. So Taiwan, I mean, the Taiwan, it seems like Taiwan and the U.S. have a divergence of interest here. It seems like the U.S. should want to, Taiwan should not want the U.S. Uh, to, or anyone else to be able to do what it can do, right? 
Because I'm not you, even sure Taiwan is particularly worried about it because we're so far behind. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not even it's not even a uh, a question. But the U.S. could engage in industrial espionage right against Taiwan potentially. I mean, the U.S. has spy and you know capabilities and. Uh, you know, I, I think the U.S. could, you know, could steal that information if it if it truly wanted to. Maybe certainly China seems to have been conducting some effective form of industrial espionage. Another thing that China does, it, it'll 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 just directly hire, it'll it'll out compete and it'll hire X in in current uh, TSMC employees away and and use them in, in its own domestic production efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Certainly, this is something. This is a game that the U.S. could try to play too. Uh, it's just that we're starting some from so far behind that it's a daunting task. We we are all very far behind Taiwan when it comes mm. to this technology. Yeah, that's um, that's interesting. So the um, you know it's uh, yeah it's. Um, it's so I mean, it seems like this is just a. It seems like it's just a matter of. I mean, it seems like it is a ma- matter of time, right? I mean, it is something. If you're a smart enough country, I mean, I don't know if any country in the world would be able to do this, right? A country that excels in science and tech, they they should be able to get there uh, eventually, right? Or there's not some... eventually, but but you have to consider the supply chain. The supply chain is global when uh-huh. you get to the semiconductor industry, and ASML is the perfect example of it. Suppose that China does develop the narrow expertise to build the fabs. Well, it, it, that's not enough. It also needs to be able to master what ASML does. So there are multiple related domains where the cutting edge is just so far away. The cutting edge of the fabs themselves is far away, and the cutting edge of, of the equipment that you use in the fabs is very far away. And, and, and the supplies, the, the gases, that, the, that these machines use, that's also part of the global supply chain. Mm. In fact, I think that maybe Ukraine is actually the location of some of the gases that are used in these machines, a, a large quantity of them. Uh, but let me, let, me, let me mention that kind of an optimistic note. O- on the question of war, and on the question of whether war between the Chinese uh, and, and the US is inevitable, I don't think that either of us want a war. It's just that both of us are kind of Getting the sense that it may be inevitable, that we may be drawn into it. Oh, I would, I, I would say, I would say, it's. Inevitable. I think there is an easy bargain that is available, mm-hmm. that would serve us and, and China. China is trying to develop its own domestic semiconductor production capabilities, and we are, as of very recently, trying to develop ours. We're making some halting efforts. We passed the Chips Act re- recently, and fifty-two billion of that is meant to go to building more fabs here on U.S. soil. Well, you know, if Intel's the one building them, it's not going to be terribly useful if they just produce the chips that Intel can make. What mm. we need is the R&D to be able to build the small advanced chips that Taiwan does. And there are, this is a daunting task. It's going to take us years to develop the, the IP we need. It'll, and it'll also take years to develop the fabs to build those chips. But perhaps if, if we have the, this federal sponsorship, and we, if we have a lot more private sector investment in these capabilities, we can make some progress towards catching up in domestic semiconductor production over the next five years or so. And so here is the bargain that is available between us and China. Our main American strategic interest in protecting Taiwan 
is protecting the semiconductor supply chain. We don't want to be at China's mercy if it is control of the semiconductors that, that all of our military equipment needs. If China controls the semiconductor supply, then we just have no chance against it. There, there's no question militarily. It can just cut us off. But if we spend the several years uh, of massive investment in, in IP and fabs, if China can see what we're doing, China can see that we are intent on becoming self-sufficient for semiconductors over a, a long several year window. And because China doesn't want war either, if we do that, China has an incentive to wait. It, it says, oh, if we just wait to take action against Taiwan until the US is self-sufficient, then once we do take action, mm. the US's strategic interests will not be th so threatened. And so this, this is the bargain that's available to us. If we do our part towards making ourselves self-reliant on semiconductors, China will see that and it will have an incentive to wait until we are no longer threatened when it makes a move on Taiwan. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> I mean, China still has these. Yeah, the you know it depends on your your the Chinese model of American decision making. Going back to our question of whether it's really just about you know rational self interest or it's uh, more emotional. I mean, like I think you've gone. I mean, I think you've maybe present the best you know objective reason for the U.S. to care about uh, Taiwan. I mean, but you know there it's like. Who knows if that's like how really, uh, you know, American politicians are thinking or what that's what they're basing their decision on. I mean, I remember during the Middle Eastern wars, I mean, all, you know, all smart people were saying, actually, the oil, I mean, the oil thing is not, is not real. There's oil, you know, there's multiple sources of oil. There's multiple ways of them to get around. You really don't need to be in the Middle East for oil. In fact, we sanction many countries and make it hard for them to, uh, to sell their oil. Um, but, you know, they still use the soil diversification because I think there was other things going on. I think there was just sort of a inertia. There was such like emotionalism. There's, you know, concern with the U.S. allies. And we just sort of, you know, use the oil. So maybe, maybe the semiconductor uh, the semiconductor uh, justification is more grounded in reality um, and doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's driving American policy. It could just be sort Certainly. of inertia and idea that China is bad. And, you know, it's like, I think the, I think this, you know, it's like the opposite of what you're saying, because I think that if China sees the U S investing in its semiconductor capabilities rationally, you know, from a, like a self-interest perspective, might be saying, Oh, all we have to do is wait. I see that as part of a package that like the psychological motivation is the same as would be defending Taiwan. It's like, let's get the semiconductor thing. Let's not let it fall into China's hand. Oh, at the same time, we also hate China and just want to, you know, just want to um, uh, prevent it, you know, from aggressing against Taiwan and, you know, sort of containing it. Um, so if, that's your if that's your model then i you know the china might look at it you know they might look at it in the exact opposite way well certainly there is an emotional component to it and that's related to the military question uh i will say that all the stuff i've been saying so far about china's military and especially its naval advantages over us i do not think that american politicians fully appreciate that if you mm. look at pelosi pelosi and what she said and did on her visit you look at it. Senator Blackburn visited Taiwan shortly after Pelosi. Very, it, it's becoming a fashionable thing among American politicians. Yeah, exactly. To, yeah. to visit Taiwan and and talk about our grand commitment to defending it against the the evil Chinese aggressors. And I think that part of that is because they do not fully appreciate our military disadvantage against Taiwan. Here, they are basically our politicians are writing checks that our military cannot cash. 
they're motivated by this American exceptionalism, this idea that we're number one, we have been number one, we will continue to be number one. And so they think that we can fight more effectively than we actually can. They just don't understand. And so that's another reason why it serves China's interest to wait. If, it, if China just waits a few more years, it keeps building more of the best ships and building more of these ballistic missiles. And we get to look at our military and our Navy shrinking year after year. At some point over the years, it'll just be obvious, even to the Pelosi's and Blackburns of the world, that China's got an advantage there. That's one reason China has an incentive to wait, because it doesn't want to fight. We want to fight. We do not sufficiently appreciate China's strength right now. And so we are not sufficiently deterred by it. It needs more time for the gap in our capabilities to become apparent so that we are sufficiently deterred. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I see. And of course, what I'm saying is, you know, it's like, it's not just one thing or the other, right? It's like, it's, uh, if, if the semiconductor thing is solved, that changes the entire that changes the entire debate uh, within the U.S. And so maybe the people who say don't don't be involved, they help it. They'll have a better case, um, yeah. right? Um, you can imagine just a scare. What like what a scare on you know the um, you know what it would like a worse scare uh, sort of shock the markets uh, if there was a China Taiwan thing would like something happened like people would anticipate the semiconductors are going to get scarce or is that something that you would think so right? This is a complex issue. Uh, Personally, I think that if China made a serious move against Taiwan, I think that would be pretty bad for the semiconductor sector in the short term. Uh, I've talked to various people who disagree and think that semiconductors might fare well for one reason or another. So I, I can't take a firm position on it. I, I think it would be bad. Uh, l let, me, let me mention one, one other factor for China to wait. I, I worry that I have overemphasized its military advantage a bit too much, because rewinding to what I hinted at earlier, when I talk about its advantages, I'm talking about its advantages in the East China Sea and the South China Sea and out to Guam. So I'm talking about its advantages in what's called the first island chain, kind of Japan, Taiwan, Philippines, that, that region. And then when you get to Guam, it's also got some, uh, its missiles give it an, a, a great capability in the second island chain. Those are where I think it has a great advantage and a growing advantage over us. But we have to consider, when we talk about the military question, we have to consider China's own vulnerabilities because its supply chain extends beyond this, this narrow region right next to China. And crucially, China relies a lot on oil imports from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. and, and this is really where we have the greatest capability to mess with its plans. Uh, China, it's trying to build what's called a blue water navy. Uh, blue water, you know, basically can go anywhere. It's not quite there yet. And over here in a fight, we could win against China, especially if the Indian Navy were on our side. And so if China did invade or blockade Taiwan anytime within the next few years, it has to have an answer to the question, what does it do about our counter blockade? preventing it from getting crucial shipments of oil from the Middle East. And not just oil, but fertilizer too. These are the shipping lanes it has to worry about. Mm. And in particular, it's got to worry about how it gets ships through this strait right here, the Malacca Strait. Very narrow choke point. Yeah. 
And so, but what about the, so the, I mean, this stuff, a lot of this stuff, they can't, so they would be, they would be sort of blockaded too. Right. And then the, um, a lot of the stuff can come by land, right? A lot of the stuff can come by rail. I mean, you have Russia, you have Central Asia. Perhaps. <laughs> and so I think Russia is the biggest factor in here. Uh, the biggest hope China has to, to get around, to be able to suffer the consequences of our blockade to the Middle East, its biggest hope is that it could replace much of those supplies with oil and gas shipped directly from Russia. Are you surprised that China is not doing more to help Russia in this current war, given that China and its own potential war could be dependent on Russia? It is interesting. China has very deliberately not done nearly as much to help Russia as it could. And, and Russia saying, what are you talking about? Do, aren't we best friends? Haven't we made all these announcements? Like right before we invaded Ukraine, didn't you and I make an announcement mm. that we were like lifelong best friends? And yeah. it's, it's quickly finding the limits of such friendship uh, because China is looking at all the sanctions that, that the West has imposed on Russia and is saying, I want none of that. We've already got enough economic problems. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're not even giving Russia. In which, food. I mean, in which case indicates that they wouldn't invade Taiwan or they wouldn't blockade Taiwan if they're that scared of sanctions and, you know, international instability then. Or, or, or it could be, I mean, you could take it both directions. You could say that, that if it suffers the, all those sanctions right now, then it doesn't as easily get to build up the capabilities it wants to take action against Taiwan in a few years. So maybe mm-hmm. it's avoiding the sanctions right now so that it can be ready to take action in a few years. If they see now that Biden administration, the Biden administration is cutting them off from advanced technology anyway, does that increase the possibility that they just end up helping Russia? That's a very good question. And it, it's a question of what Biden's recent actions about the semiconductor supply chain imply for China's window. It's an aggressive move. This is kind of the highest level of economic warfare. And it alarms me because it says that the United States, we're telling China that we define ourselves in terms of superiority to them, that we, it, it's, it's defining China as an existential threat to us. Uh, and, and I'm alarmed about what that could mean for our relations in the mid to long term. Uh, I I need to think about this move more, but I, I think I, I'm skeptical of it. I'm, I generally disapprove of what Biden's doing here. Mm-hmm. But okay. on the narrow question of what it means for China's window, on the one hand, you could say that if China is ready or almost ready to take action against Taiwan, what this does is it gives China an incentive to do so sooner. And so this could imply that we, the United States, believe that China is not quite ready yet. We think that it needs a couple or a few more years to prepare, and we are starving it of semiconductors to to push that window farther back. That that is, to me, what Biden's move says about his analysis. He thinks Mm -hmm. that China is not quite ready to act against Taiwan right right now, and so he's delaying it further by starving it of the, you know, we we can't prevent it from building the ships directly, but we can prevent it from having the chips that it needs to build all these ships and planes and missiles. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much here, so much we can go into. Uh, Chris, let's um, let's put a pit in this uh, for now. Um, is there, and we can we can continue. I mean, another aspect we can do all day on 
uh, semiconductors. We can do you know another conversation on sort of the internal politics of this, the internal politics in China. There's just there's just so much here. Um, do you have anything that you know you would uh, recommend people read? Anything in particular that shaped your views on any of the topics we talked about today? I would read more if if I could choose one or two things. I would read more about the U.S. divest invest program and the rate at which we're decommissioning our ships over the next several years. I'd, I'd couple that with reading that about reading about the rate at which China is churning out new warships. Uh, another related factor I haven't mentioned is our, our Air Force suffers the exact same problem. We're also decommissioning lots of our fighters and bombers over the next several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is, that is an amplifying factor in saying our ability to protect Taiwan is at its lowest sometime around 2027. So I'd be looking at 2027 in all of hmm. this. Okay, year 2027, the, the, the You know, it's a probability the, density the, distribution, you know, but but it's clustered around It's going to go up in 2027 and then hopefully hopefully go down. It's gotcha. A, a normal distribution where the center is somewhere around 2027. <laughs> Okay, for all you forecasters out there, that's 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 when you're going to maximize, yeah, the, the likelihood of uh, of war in Pacific. All right, Chris, it's been fun, and uh, until next time. All right, good talking to you.